the What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and today I am joined by a uh, special guest. Uh, Brittany Crone is joining us. Brittany is a Naptown native. Um, she's also, uh, we serve on a board together. Uh, it's a board called uh, <laughs> Patchwork Indie. I, I forget if it's just Patchwork or Patchwork <laughs> Indie. I think it's Patchwork Indie is the organization. <laughs> Patchwork Indie is right, yes. Uh, we also uh, work together. Uh, and most importantly, we're friends. And Brittany's just a, a wonderful person and a beautiful spirit. And so, Brittany, I'm glad to have you on the podcast today. Oh, Ben, thank you. It's an honor to be here, to be honest. And those kind words filled me up for like the rest of the weekend. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I love that. Um, so we're today we're going to be talking about the intricacies and the complexities of um, existing in a multiracial family um, and maybe even holding multiracial identity. Um, and so as we jump into this, um, let me just state on the front end, I know on this podcast, more often than not, we discuss societal issues um, from like a sociological slash political place and also a faith-based place. Sometimes I deviate from that explicitly and today faith may come up, um, but I don't feel a need to explicitly theologically link racial identity and faith. One, because it's not easy to do. Um, as we talk about and understand race and racial identity, those concepts didn't really exist um, when any book of the Bible was being written. Um, and so it's really hard to make that parallel. But two, uh, you know, if, if we really believe, as I do, that um, our faith and our spirituality impacts all of our lives and intersects it all, um, then it's not always necessary to explicitly call it out. Um, and so that's kind of the, the the reason I won't name it too explicitly today. But for those listeners that listen intentionally for those faith-based pieces, um, just know you may not hear it as explicitly as, as you you want to today. I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting y'all know that's, that's what's going to be. Um, so as we jump into this, um, Britt, can you, for the audience, um, tell us how you identify racially? Yes. Well, I mean, there's a <laughs> short version and the long version. Um, usually, you know, the the simplest way and like for me being part of some different multiculturalism discussion groups. And we can talk more about that later, but like, you know, understanding these different variables of identity and where they intersect. Um, I usually just say I'm multiracial. That's the box that I check on all of the forms. It's, you know, the census, you got to identify like Native American, Black, White, other, right? So I'm multiracial is really um, the, the fastest way to describe that. I think often other people might profile me differently. A lot of people on the face would think that I'm Latina or, or just white even, cause I'm pretty white presenting, but, uh, multi is the preferred box that I check. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you think about yourself as multiracial, do you understand that to mean like the combination of specific identities or do you really just think of yourself as multiracial as the kind of like unique identity? 
Does that question make sense? More so a combination. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I I would say more so a combination because I do. I guess another part of that identity is identifying as a person of color, and mm-hmm. that also to me can mean you know a few different things. Um, and and most importantly, in the framework of a racist society, um, there are some some things that come with that, but you know, it's a combination of these different identities, especially like witnessing my parents and my siblings, how we move through the world. And then, you know, our grandparents on both Mm -hmm. sides, you know, and how they identified um, is very distinct. And then you have my siblings and I in a household who are trying to combine all of these worlds subconsciously, of course, like we're not aware of it at all, but just trying to find that balance for ourselves. Um, so I actually really like that question and mm. I am an external processor. So I might start the answer one way and then say like, huh, actually that's really interesting. Um, yeah, maybe it's definitely a combination and it's kind of like its own thing as well. Cause mm. you know, I don't know if you had this experience growing up Ben, but growing up, you know, my white friends kind of looked at me as different and maybe exotic in a way. And then my black friends to them, I was also very different and not black. So it's a unique space on its own. It stands on its own. And it's this combination that we grapple with. Absolutely. And I think it's even, um, it's even unique and distinct from what I would consider biracial identity. Um, mm-hmm. Cause you know, I identify as, as black and biracial and I haven't always, um, those that have, you know, follow the different writings I've done in the podcast I've done over the years, you know, you've heard some of my journey, but, um, you know, as a kid, I think I identified pretty significantly as biracial, um, mostly because I, I was raised in a, once I was adopted at 11, you know, I was raised in a, a white household. Um, but, um, I'm not white passing, right. Uh, even in my, even when my melanin is the least visible, uh, it's still evident that I'm, I'm not white. Um, and, and so I, I knew that, but at the same time, because I didn't grow up culturally black and because of the, um, some of the traumatic baggage I have around, uh, blackness for my own personal history, um, it didn't feel okay or right, um, or even safe, I guess, to identify as black. And so I just identified as biracial and, and to your point, Britt, yeah, I mean, I, I had the experience that many, I dare say almost every biracial kid, um, and, and biracial is in like black and white. I know biracial can be uh, any different combination, but I'm thinking of black and white kids specifically. And we've all kind of had this, com- this, this experience of being called like an Oreo, you know, black on the outside, mm-hmm. black on the inside. Um, and so you're, you're not black enough for your black friends, but you're mm-hmm. absolutely not white and your white friends know that, you know, that, and, and so you're wondering where you fit. Um, and oddly enough, I know people that are, you know, black, they have two black parents, two, four black grandparents, and they still actually have gotten that, uh, or, that derogatory mm-hmm. name Oreo, which is fascinating to me. So that says something about kind of white supremacy, um, because anyway, we don't have to go there, but it's just, it's intriguing to me. Okay. So, um, why, why do I say that it's a sign of white supremacy that, uh, a person with two black parents and four black grandparents could be called an Oreo. Um, 
I say that for two reasons. You know, it's my belief that the concepts of race in general, um, we only have them because of whiteness um, and mm -hmm. systemic mm -hmm. oppression, right? Um, for those that aren't steeped in the history, you know, race, uh, this idea of black and white and the inferior and superior labels that were kind of put onto those categories was created um, by white people, um, to some degree Europeans, but uh, kind of really taken hold of by um, uh, colonial U.S. settlers as well. It was created as an excuse to colonize the continent of Africa, rob it of its resources and its people, and um, to perpetuate the um, the transatlantic slave trade and the dehumanization um, of uh, millions of people. Um, and so, so that dehumanization, that messaging, that not only are there different categories of race, um, black, white, Asian, native, and the colors that go along with them, but also, um, you know, there was a stratification that took place where white was on top mm -hmm. and black mm -hmm. was on the bottom, you know, and that stratification was in scientific literature. It was mm -hmm. uh, in religious literature. It was in our media, in songs, in plays, eventually in movies, in books. And so you have uh, centuries, quite literally, of this messaging that blackness and black skin is not only inferior, but it's brutish. It is whorish. Uh -huh. It is violent. Um, it's subhuman, quite literally. Um, so that messaging gets in there somewhere. Um, and then kind of this idea of what it means to be white or to be black or to be native becomes um, solidified, right? Uh -huh. um, and so being white means you talk a certain way. It means you sound a certain way. You use quote unquote proper English, for instance. Um, and so as people of color, we over the centuries internalize this messaging um, and then we kind of feed it back to each other. Um, and so when I say that that being called an Oreo is a sign of white supremacy, like that's what I mean. Like that it, it does yeah. feeding back the oppression that we had been given. Exactly. And it's like that idea that because of, like you mentioned, the stratification of of race and the the hierarchy thereof, um, you know, it's like the minimization of a culture, like to yeah. be these different racial groups, like you said, has to mean something very specific to me, very narrow. And it, it really, um, it, I guess, I mean, maybe we both experienced this, like you being called an Oreo, like it really takes away from almost the freedom just mm -hmm. to be, yeah. You know, because we've been labeled with these different things, what no, depending on who you're around and, and mm -hmm. how you're getting perceived, you and the label is immediately attached and expectations by other people we're around follow because of that um, narrowing of of identity. Absolutely. And then if you're not, um, you know, for me, I don't think my parents were necessarily equipped to help me navigate that. Um, yeah. so, you know, I just kind of internalized it and, and held on to it until I could kind of wrestle with it later. Um, but that, that brings me, well, uh, let me close the loop on this thought. The reason I say it's distinct from like multiracial is distinct from biracial is because, um, you know, when I'm thinking about being biracial, I'm really just thinking about two ends of the spectrum, like being black and being mm -hmm. white. Right. And so I'm constantly wrestling mm -hmm. with where I fit within that spectrum, but to be multiracial, right? It's not just a, a spectrum anymore, right? There are multiple different identity points, more than two by definition. Um, and, you know, in my kind of conversations, depending upon your, the way you were brought up, like you could very well just identify as, as multiracial as like 
um, uh, you know, a mezcla or a mix of the different identities. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can identify as someone who holds all those identities distinctly, right? And so that's kind of what prompted the question. And um, my follow-up, Britt, is, is how was racial identity discussed in your family? And like, what help did you have from your family unit in thinking through and understanding the identity that, that you held? Ooh, man, we're getting so deep. I'm going to share my whole personal story on here. Um, <laughs> no, I'll try to keep it focused because I love, love thinking about this with you and also like just that reflecting piece that we've had to do. Um, I know you've done it on in your journey and I've had to do it as well. It it really was not discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, it really was not discussed. My dad is white. Uh, he's, you know, Irish, Scottish, German, European, and, and some Na- native American in there at Choctaw and Cherokee. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we live in a patriarchal society, you know, he leads our household and, and my mom, um, my dad married my mom after he had divorced from, from his first wife and, uh, married my mama, who I guess was maybe his first black girlfriend, fiance, and then wife. Mm. Um, you know, and I don't know all the details like through and through about that, but that's the sense I get considering my dad um, had grown up in a very small rural town here in Indiana. And um, we did not discuss it. We just did not discuss it. My granddad on my mom's side was a very tall, very dark black man um, in his complexion and played basketball. And he kind of came back into my mom's life after some time. Um, Mm -hmm. And even being around him, we still just never discussed any differences. And I, one memory that I'd love to share is when we went to a funeral down South with some of my mom's extended family. Uh, and the funeral was held in a black church. Um, mm-hmm. And I had never been to a congregation that was considered, you know, just in a black church. Uh, you know, the music was completely different than even what my mom listened to growing up and uh, people expressing their praise and, you know, showing up in that space and even expressing their grief was unlike anything that I had experienced. So we were in the South. Um, Number one is like a different culture from the Midwest. (laughs) And then on top of that, it was a completely different cultural space being in a black church that I just had never gone to before. And I remember kind of asking my um, parents, because, you know, in the pew that we were in and everyone was like singing and dancing and like really the spirit was hitting strong. OK. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of being like, wow, what is what, what is happening? This is amazing. But I also as a child thought that there was like someone was hurt because of the way they were crying out and mm. expressing that kind of spiritual um, experience they were having. So I turned to my my mom and my dad and I was like why are they crying? What, is everyone okay? Like, or why, why are they screaming like that and moving like that? I was, you know, I won't say screaming. I mean, it was like crying out. Right. Yeah. And I just had never, and then the memory is so strong to me because my mom kind of looked at me and my dad looked at me and my dad was like, oh, okay, honey, I'll talk to you about it later. I'll tell you later. Mm talked about it later. We never talked about it, never came back to it. And I still remember that to this day. And now 
I completely, I understand. Like I completely understand, but as a child, having never been taken in that environment, um, and, and never, you know, really discussed openly about how, you know, my mom identified. And I think it's just because she was raised by her grandmother and her grandmother. I didn't know this until recently, Ben, her grandmother, uh, was one of the first women and black women to own a home in like the Bar- Butler Tarkington area. Wow. And because she had that home there, it was a predominantly white neighborhood. And my, I guess my great grandmother really, I mean, she was a phenomenal woman and she, she didn't really care, you know, who was who she was like, I'm here. I'm going to show up to the social events that are happening in this neighborhood. I'm going to go to tea with the other women who were white. And I'm going to take my granddaughter, who was my mom. And, um, and I'm going to, you know, teach her how to be a lady in these Mm -hmm. social environments. And so really what I gather from, from kind of prodding my mom and asking these questions too, is like, she, I don't know if she ever felt fully comfortable. I think she was one of those people labeled as an Oreo um, as well. You know, like she, she was raised up more so around white people here in um, Indiana. And then, you know, marrying my dad, she just kind of let him lead how we were raised culturally. And Mm -hmm. culture is one of those things that's like transmitted more subconsciously, like through experiences, no one is really sitting us down and saying like, this is how you should act as a X, Y, Z person. But we just learn those things through experiences and, and the people around us. So it was very interesting to not, I mean, to go back to the original question, um, to reflect on that and, and say like, we actually did not talk about race. And now I, I really, what pushed it which is kind of weird. I, it's one of those things you don't, you maybe are not necessarily comfortable asking your parents, mm-hmm. but after, you know, George Floyd was murdered in mm. that way. So publicly and like going and protesting and some I've protested um, in the past before that, but not as heavily as like when, when this happened, you know, when we saw someone be murdered by the police in this yeah. way. Right. Um And I had asked my mom, I was like, mom, straight up, what is your experience as, you know, a black woman marrying, you know, into a white family, you know, my dad and his brothers and his parents are all white from rural, from rural Indiana. And, you know, what is that like for you? How do you feel? And she, she told me, honestly, she's like, I never really felt uncomfortable. I felt very, I felt like everyone had open arms for me. And that's something you know, not having been raised by her own mother and then not really being as close with her father, my granddaddy, it, I think it's something that she just felt like this is my family now. Mm -hmm. Like I have a family now in the way that I always imagined. So it's, it's very interesting to, to reflect on like maybe why she didn't ever choose to, you know, teach us how to do our hair a certain way or, you know, the, the, the clothing options that we even chose, right? Like different things that might come to mind when you think about culture. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. This is the, 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 the question I'm holding, I think is again, rooted in my experience of being biracial. Um, so I'll ask it, but we can kind of unpack and play with the question together. Um, 
I'm, I'm wondering if you, at this point in time, like how close you feel um, to the black part of your identity. Um, mm. And, and when I, why, the reason I say it's probably influenced by being biracial is because, again, I'm thinking about like existing on that spectrum of, of black, white. And so my experience has been, am I feeling more black or white? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you are multiracial, right, you may not have that specific experience. And so maybe a, a broader question would be, um, are there moments when when you're not thinking of yourself as, as multiracial, but you feel like more aligned with any particular part of your racial identity or, or any, any particular uh, one mm-hmm. of your many racial identities, I guess would be a better way to ask it. Hmm. There's a lot of code switching, I think, mm. that I go through like in a week, depending on who I'm around. I think <laughs> it sounds so... Ben, it's almost like sad in a way that we even have to dance through these different labels, like as, as people, just as humans, but it's also, it's, it's a truth. It's a, you know, oppressive systems and racial systems are, are a truth. And, um, when I feel the most, I guess, solid in my identity is in that multiracial biracial space. Like I'm, I'm neither. Mm-hmm. And I think I used to maybe in elementary school and maybe even middle school. So the younger years, I used to feel like, oh, I'm I'm no different than the people around me. Like I just didn't even consider it. Mm-hmm. And then as time goes on, um, I began to feel like, oh, maybe I'm more white. But like we said at the top of the conversation too, like to my white friends, I was not white. Mm. You know, I was, I was different. They knew it. And then I realized it kind of slow, (laughs) (laughs) which is so funny. I always say I kind of like woke up late, you Uh know, came to like a new level of consciousness a little later in my life than maybe some other people. But when I feel the most me and like rooted in, in an, an identity, it's really around like my family members and other people um, who share multiple racial identities. So mm-hmm. other folks who are biracial or multiracial, um, cause it's kind of like, we just have that unsaid knowing really without mm-hmm. knowing how we each were raised. Um, because it became very evident to me as the years went on that, like, I wasn't identified as a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. And my whole life, everyone has been talking about, you know, being how how Latina I look, you know, how Hispanic I look. Oh, are you Hispanic? Are you Latina? And it's a little ironic because, you know, that community embraced me. I felt like in my heart w- more than either black or white mm-hmm. communities, like growing up in school, they everybody. And if if. Folks may not be aware of this, or they may be listening to to the conversation today. But in Hispanic countries and Spanish-speaking countries, Latino countries, everybody is all shades. Um, but there's they also experience colorism, mm-hmm. and it's more so. And then like a very strong sense of nationalism, and then like mm-hmm. ethnic groups, right, that have a racial component, like a, mm-hmm. a you know a complexion component. Um, but at the end of the day, like what really tops it is that nationalism yeah. concept, like. 
are you Colombian? Are you Puerto Rican? Are you Mexican? Or are you, uh, you know, Costa Rican? Yeah. So on and so forth. So everybody from every shade, light to dark, you know, and uh, they just kind of embraced me as as their own. And that's probably what set me on a, a path to dedicating myself to learning the Spanish language and like spending more time around um, the Latinx community here in Indy. Um, Cause they took me in. I, that's kind of how I say it. Like they took me in when I never really felt comfortable and wasn't really, I didn't feel the same open armed, warm warmth from, um, you know, other, other communities. Yeah. Yeah. Long way to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fascinating because um, I was talking with my, my partner the other day about <clears throat> like identity, like one's internal versus external sense of identity, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And for me, my experience of how I identify is, is shaped very heavily by how I'm perceived and have been perceived externally, um, mm-hmm. as well as like just what feels right internally. And so yeah. um, growing up, I was people all people assumed I was biracial, black and white, but I would often get questions about if I'm Puerto Rican or Dominican, um, mm-hmm. occasionally Native American. As I got older and my facial hair came in, I'd have like Iraqis ask me if I'm Iraqi. I'd have a Saudi dude ask yeah. me if I'm Saudi, you know, like depending on my skin tone and my facial hair, like people just didn't know where I was from and they had questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But once I grew my locks out, the question stopped. There have been no questions as long as I've had locks for it. It's, it's wild. Um, wow. and, and nothing else about me has changed except the length mm-hmm. of my hair. Right. But this, this is a mm-hmm. signal. It is a, a cultural mm-hmm. racial signal. Um, mm-hmm. and so, so it's just, it's fascinating for me to think about what allows us to feel at home when, where, and why. Right. And for me, I think uh, to some degree, one of the reasons it's been easier, I currently identify as both black and biracial. Right. Um, but I lead with black and, and part of that is because of my skin tone, my facial hair, my nappy hair, my locks, like I am perceived as black everywhere I go, um, without question. And so it's easier. It feels more comfortable to kind of like slip into that. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but for you, I can imagine, right. Like you don't have those, those same, uh, external kind of indicators. Um, and so there's something about the way that like as movement in community groups, we look for those that appear mm-hmm. like us and might have similar yeah, experiences. For safety. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can understand mm-hmm. why like members of the Latinx community would look at you and be like, ah, come, come my daughter. <laughs> you are, you are uh, literally. literally. Right. Yeah. And I mean, similar to what you described, it's like easier for me to like, just flip into that, to embrace that, even though I was not raised in like the culture by any means. And I'm, I am the only one in my family who speaks Spanish fluently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's very strange. Like when people really, cause I, I, I love being around the people, you know, from all different Spanish speaking countries and, um, you know, my friends growing up too, like I said, they really embraced me when not everybody did. Um, so it is interesting, you know, it is interesting. I spend a lot of time like learning Spanish, but obviously race and culture is so much more than a language we speak. So I also was like fascinated and like fell head over heels in love with salsa dancing and bachata and Mm -hmm. merengue and like being in those environments and feeling very comfortable, like 
very safe and free and fun and comfortable. Um, and then feeling like, shoot, like I, but I'm not, you know, I still want to honor the identity that, you know, other people have, because I, again, I'm not raised in the culture. I, I was born here in Indianapolis, Indiana in the United States. Right. So I don't want to be pretending or, or claiming something that I'm not really, cause that's a whole other issue that we have to, I guess, confront, yeah. you know, in, in a, in a racist and racial, racially diverse world, um, as people kind of like claiming things and getting benefits of being certain identities when they're not, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that's always been like a barrier almost to being able to just relax and say like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I fit here. And like, but then we always have to come back to the conversation of like, Oh, but what, what are you really like, where are you yeah. from? And Oh, you're not this, you're not that. And it's, it's very interesting. And I, I'm sure you can hear me struggling to like articulate what that thing is, but I, mm-hmm. we're getting there. We're like hinting, hinting yeah. at it. And I yeah. Mean, what what I hear you pointing to is, is while it's this tension between, okay, this, these people, right. Some subset of these people are welcoming me. Right. And I feel like there's home here in the same way your mom probably mm-hmm. felt like a, a certain type of home, right. With her husband and her husband's family. But you also don't want to participate in any sort of cultural appropriation. Um, exactly. Exactly. You know. I want to completely avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there's a there's a, a, a tension there. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That the, I'll say this and then we'll we'll wrap this episode and move on to the next one. Um, but a similar tension that I experienced around calling myself just black has to deal with colorism. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm you know, I could pass as a light skinned black dude that I've, I've met black folks that have my same complexion they've got two black parents Mm -hmm. so it's feasible Mm -hmm. um but i know internally i have my complexion because my mom is white you know what i'm saying you know and not not only that but because of my complexion i am more palatable in white spaces Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. if i were you know a a deeper Mm -hmm. chocolate skin tone um and so i just carry that like the recognition of my own color privilege with me everywhere um and it's Mm -hmm. privilege that that other folks don't necessarily have. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, all of this is about Absolutely. wrestling with the tension of a thing um, and still finding the right way to authentically name who we are and where home is, where our people are. And it's, it's, if it were easy, we wouldn't have to talk about it so much, you know? That's right. What's it going to take, right? <laughs> right. right. How do we make it happen? Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So we're going to, we're going to wrap up, um, uh, part one of this conversation with Brittany Crone folks, but, but come back for the next episode. We're going to dive into kind of uh, looking ahead at, at how we take our own experiences of culture and race and are bringing it into our families um, and setting our children up um, to hopefully have slightly different experiences um, than we will. So uh, thanks for sticking around for part one, BC. I love this conversation so far and I can't wait to continue it in the next episode. Oh, so looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm so glad you're with me on this journey. And if you have questions, ideas, or suggestions for the show, please reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram as Thoughtful Revolutionary. On Facebook, it's Benjamin J or Benjamin Joseph Tapper. Or you can email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. And I can't wait to join you for the next episode. Take care, y'all.